Good morning, everyone. And this one's uh, song is a uh, was written for my brother uh, Kenny. If uh, he would have been, I think, fifty six today it was his birthday. So this is for him, and it's actually a song about how he he has the victory over death through uh, faith in Jesus Christ, and one day I'll see him. So. Well, I'm sitting here, drowning in a pool of tears Wondering what just happened, cause you up and disappeared I wasn't ready to lose you now Trying to make some sense of all this If somehow, you're my baby brother and my friend But now you left me, I can't wait to see you again I'm not ready to go Brother, I'm not ready to let you go Oh, no, no, I'm not ready to let you go Oh, now, well, I remember When you were just a baby boy Running naked in the backyard for all to see Throwing rocks at the birds and everything Singing with Elvis and laughing with me Playing some football, you were the man Scoring those touchdowns, I was your biggest fan, yeah I'm not ready to let you go Oh, baby brother, I'm not ready to let you go Oh, no, no, I'm not ready to let you go Oh, now, will I remember You and your girl Her name was Debbie and she rocked your world And before you knew it you had three kids, Junior and Justin, and all St. Nick. You loved your summers down by the sea. With friends and family, you were feeling free, yeah. I'm not ready to let you go. Oh, baby brother, I'm not ready to let you go. Oh, no, no, I'm not ready to let you go. Cause I love you. Smoking cigars and drinking scotch The band of brothers you had to watch But now the Lord, he's come for you I wish that Jesus would take me to, yeah I'm not ready to let you go Oh baby brother, I'm not ready to let you go Oh no, no, I'm not ready to let you go Cause I love you All right, um, I'm back, and uh, if you could, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, let me just uh, push this a little way. 
that's better. All right, uh, just uh, I readjusted thing. Uh, of course, I'm messing around, monkey around with stuff. So I just readjusted everything. Um, I, I got a different. You can look at a different. Look at the room now. I don't. You don't see my bookcases. <laughs> the funny thing is, I wanted, wanted the bookcases in a shot because it looks pretty cool, right? But uh, they're all in front of me or on the side of me, and I got this couch in the back of me, which uh, is. It's kind of a um, a sentimental thing. And it's a very comfortable couch. I got it from Titus and Jody when I moved to Marion, Iowa, and they bought it for me, and uh, so they picked it up for me. And uh, so uh, I like the couch, and I wanted my, I always wanted a couch in my office. So I have a couch right outside in the living room, which is adjacent to this bedroom, which I turned into an office. So anyway, so I, I wanted to get better light, and I get the better light from the I got I'm getting a good light when I'm in front of the this the the, the window here. I have this big window, so. I, uh, so I like the, the shot better. A lot of times it looks like I'm in darkness, you know. I look at some of the videos, so it's a con constant battle with light. So unfortunately, I'm not a, uh, what do you call it, a producer or a director or something. <laughs> so anyway, so that uh, is, uh, and so just a little bit, a uh, little bit different look. And uh, so I, I like it. I actually have, you know, on my lap, everything, my, as far as my computers and laptops are, I have two laptops, one over here, one in front of me here, and I'm not using that if I'm using, I can use it if I need to, but I have my, my desktop down below here, I have a tower, then I run the, the broadcast off of, uh, off the tower, which uh, Titus built for me years ago, it's, it's getting pretty old, so I need a new, actually I need a new uh, desktop, only because Windows, uh, Windows 10 will be going away in a couple of years, so I, I read an article, so I, I'd like to get, get to, I can't get win, I get Windows 11 on it. And then I needed a camera that, the camera I have, I love this camera because it gives me different shots, you know, like the split screen there, that one, this one, you know, different like things like that. So I, I like that. And uh, so it's a Logitech camera, great camera. So let me give it back here. And so therefore I, uh, I need, they didn't have the, I would have went to upgrade to Windows 11 and use my laptop here, which is I could use on Windows 11, but I didn't, I can't do it because the camera didn't have the drivers. They didn't have a camera that Logitech have a camera, this camera, with the Windows 11 drivers. So I believe they do now. I think I talked to them a couple, several months ago. I need to reconfirm that. I'm pretty sure they did. So, but anyways, get, uh, so I just got to, uh, hopefully that'll be one of those, keep that in prayer for me so I, I can pick up a, a new desktop eventually because I, I want it to get a new one before this one goes on because this thing is has been around for a long time, it's been 10 years. My other laptop here is 10 years. But the, the, the reason why the life of these prolongs so much is uh, the S, the uh, solid state drives were a huge um, benefit to keeping these things going. So anyways, that's, uh, so I'm just, so if I look over here, that's because my uh, my broadcast, everything controller is over here. Whereas these these screens, you know, like the, the right there, that, and then when I show the Bible passage, that's right in front of me. So I had it right in front of me so I could look at the camera at the same time. So it's not looking like I'm looking over here all the time. Anyway, so there's a lot of stuff like that. You have to always remember to look at the camera while you're talking all the time. Sometimes I, you might see my eyes moving around or whatever. But uh, so I forget there's, there's uh, you're the people in front of me right in front of the camera. So when I first started doing this, Back with Massachusetts, when I moved to Massachusetts, it was it was kind of it was I I, I I actually enjoy it. I don't I don't it doesn't bother me. Some people say, like, how can you do? Uh, is it hard to do that with nobody in front of you? Yeah, at first it was, but I don't think about it. I'm just I'm thinking I'm teaching the passage. I know people are listening, watching, whatever, and uh, whether it's live or through the later date. So it it didn't it never really bothered me. It's, you know, it's kind of like I remember J. Vernon McGee when I f listened to him. He was in a studio with just an engineer, so <laughs> and it's not like me. I have nobody uh, with me right now, and so uh, and then you listen to McGee in front of an audience. It's like he's like a different. It's he's much more animated. That's when I listen to my live broadcast over at DBC, where I'm the pastor of down the street, half mile down the street. It's like holy smokes, <laughs> like, you know. It's uh, it's uh, I'm much more animated with a with a crowd in front of me, so. Anyways, so if I might be adjusting the light thing and everything, I think I might be a little, I'm gonna, I might back off this, uh, I got a light behind me, hold on one sec. So you can see me do, do this stuff. <laughs> I just want to, I want to see how it looks now. But, uh, yeah, that's a little bit better, but I don't know. My face is starting to white out a little bit. I, maybe I, I might have to shut the blinds over here, but we'll, we shall see. 
because the blinds are open. So, anyways, just uh, another, uh, you know, doing my thing here. So, all right, enough of that garbage and uh, my problems. And uh, let's uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. I mean, well, if you haven't turned there, go to Ephesians chapter two, verse one. I think I might have told you that, maybe not. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. As you can see on the board. We're going to begin a study of uh, Ephesians 2.16. It's going to be a two-hour study. And then we'll do on Saturday, Ephesians 2.17. And that'll only take one hour to do that verse. So so verses 16 and 17 we'll be uh, uh, doing this week. And uh, today we'll be looking at the A part of Ephesians 2.16, which teaches us that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ reconciled Jewish and Gentile Christians into one body through his, through his cross. So this will constitute our 117th hour in this uh, series. So uh, let's uh, take a moment of silent prayer. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired, and that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you, Father, for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work on our behalf and eternity past, the person work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. We thank you, Father, for uh, all the spiritual and temple blessings that we have because of our union identification with your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for uh, the fact that... Uh, uh, for the things that you're going to do for us in the future with the resurrection body at the rapture of the church, which is imminent. And, uh, and if we uh, go before the rapture and uh, leave this earth, then we'll be absent from the body face to face with your son, Jesus Christ. And you give us the victory over death, not, not just spiritual death, but physical death, deliverance from eternal condemnation, condemnation from the law, deliverance from enslavement to sin and Satan in his cosmic system. And, uh, we, and we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins all through your work of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father, which is uh, basically now given, made us part of the new humanity. Uh, it's established uh, humanity as the rulers over this earth. And, uh, and, and, you, and then one day we'll dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent of Christ. We thank you that we're part of the kingdom on this earth. We thank you, Father, for the blessings of the new covenant that we have as a result of our union identification with your son, Jesus Christ, and being united with Jewish believers. And uh, we just thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Spirit. And we pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here this morning. I pray that the, uh, the Spirit would speak to each person individually in the body of Christ, whether they're live or through the recordings at a later date, uh, and also speak to them not only as individuals, but all of us as a corporate unit. I pray the Spirit would help them to understand and apply what they're being taught and to make uh, careful application, and, uh, and and please break down any barriers that sin and Satan might hinder the, that from happening, and um, and also empower me as the communicator to bring forth your full counsel today with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment. Because your word says that man does not live in bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Also, Father, I just pray for uh, the technology. Thank you for it. I'm streaming video by YouTube, and I pray it would function properly. I uh, thank you for the service that they provide. Protect it from the evil one. I pray there'd be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and the upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, the media platforms that you've given to us. 
And I thank you for them all and protect them all from the enemy and use them mightily. And I know you have and will continue to do so. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right. You should be at Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just, uh, this that, that, that light in front of me is, I have to close the blinds. Hold on one sec. Oh, that's that's much better. <laughs> I say much better. That's my mother used to say that. I was taking care of my mother when she had, has dementia, and my dad and my and uh, oh, that my dad said much better. He used to say much better, and then kidding around. And my mother picked up on it, and uh, so I say stuff like that. Funny, funny is when you get old, you, you, you like. I, when I was younger, I never thought I'd be like my father. Well, guess what? I say a lot of things, a lot of things like my father did. Food doesn't fall far, too far from the tree. Like I was at Starbucks the other day. I was ordering, a, uh, I love those honey citrus mint tea, right? And uh, they're delicious. So I order one and I, you know, the girl says, anything else you like? And I said, yeah, a bag of money. And that's my father always says that, a bag of money or, you know. And it's like, gosh, and I go to the girl at the, uh, the, uh, the window. I said, I apologize because that's my father talking. <laughs> well, so... Anyway, so I don't have any kids, so I don't, they don't have to pick up my crazy habits and my jokes. My, my, my father's actually a funny guy. Uh, anyway, so uh, you should be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As I said before, we're going to look at the, uh, the first, of, this will be the first of two hours in Ephesians 2.16. Today we'll be looking at the A part, the first declaration there, or the assertion there, which teaches us that Jesus Christ reconciled Jewish and Gentile Christians into one body through his son, Jesus Christ. So uh, let's read from the Net Bible, and then, as we've been doing, we'll after we do that, we'll read uh, from my translation, and then we're going to look at verse 16 in detail. The reason why we do that again is because we're paying attention to the context. And I, I also, you know, we're supposed to read. You know, Paul said this to Timothy. For those who study First Timothy with me, I think it was in First Timothy four. He told you know Timothy that the churches they, they should be uh, they should be the public reading of Scripture, and uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, especially with people who are in doc, so-called doctrinal ministries, that they don't even read passages of Scripture. Like I, I told you the story, a friend of mine came out and see me, saw me when I was in uh, Blairstown, Iowa, when I first got my first church plant, and it was like 2003. And I read the whole chapter of Romans 6 one time. He, he, he said, I, I never, because I knew his pastor, and, uh, and uh, he, he said, I never re read uh, an entire chapter like that. And I said, well, that's not right, you know. So that's how cults and false doctrine gets uh, gets about and starts causing problems when people take verses out of context. That's how the cults again, and, uh, and yeah, false teachers do that. So, and I, you, in fact, you go to a church that there, you know, there's pastors who teach a verse right on a verse, right? And then the, what they teach on it has nothing to do with the verse. So it's like it's like okay, I, I I'm not getting anything out of that. You're not teaching me my Bible. It's because the reason why that is because they don't know what they're talking about. They they don't know how to uh, interpret the Bible. That's why you're seeing expository te type teaching. People going through the different books of the Bible. You're seeing less and less and less and less of that. If all those guys who know who I talk, I, I remember Robert Theme, Bob Theme Jr. You know, it's funny. All these, all these guys who were ordained by him, you know, I, I that I know of, and I, they do an expository type teaching. I very, I, what I see here from these guys is that they, they, they you know, and I'm, I'm complaining about it because, you know, these guys have the gift, and you know, they were ordained by the, you know, the colonels. Like they should be teaching these different books, like he did. They're not doing what he did. He did everything. I mean, he did the Psalms. He did Isaiah, all of Isaiah. That's 66 chapters. So, you know, so I always, you know, his influence on me was that, you know, like with McGee and others, and uh, I was like, well, I'm gonna, uh, that's what I want to do. So if that's why an expository type ministry will go back from the Old Testament, New Testament, and go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, book by book. So, you know, we also teach the different doctrines of the Christian faith. So you're getting your systematic theology, you're getting your bibliology, uh, and you're also, uh, you're also getting your expository teaching, your knowledge of the Bible. And so we're to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so that's why I do what I do. And also so to teach you uh, a very basic principle of interpretation. Pay attention to the context. So we're going to read verse 16, study verse 16 today. So what, when I say context, what did we learn 
in the immediate preceding context of verse 16. And what are we gonna what are we what are we gonna see in verses the verses that follow? That's very important. And then in the context of the, whether it's the chapter or the book we're talking in, or we're doing the, the the context of the whole New Testament, and then the context of the whole Bible. So very, very important that we do these things because you know, when you start, when you don't, when you don't inter when you don't interpret right, you don't follow pr uh, proper principles of hermeneutics, the, the, which is the art and science of interpretation. Um, you're going to get into false doctrine, and you know, bad interpretation results in false doctrine. False doctrine results in bad behavior in the body of Christ. Flip side of that is sound uh, interpretive principles. Sound do sound interpretation leads to sound doctrine. And that leads to godly behavior in the Christian community. That's what we studied in the in the pastoral epistles in First, Second, and Timothy, and Titus. All right. So if you uh, look at uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one again, I'm reading from the Net Bible, and then we'll read from my translation as well this, this whole chapter, and then look at verse as I said before, verse sixteen. So it says in Ephesians two one, and although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives and the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one, and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, and speaking of the law, which he identifies in verse 15, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, he did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, before I read you my translation of chapter two, a couple of points, a couple of things for those who might be popping into the study for the first time, and we have uh, have a lot of people, new people coming in because of the or with YouTube or the websites or the podcasts. Uh, we see that this book is a circular letter. It, it was uh, written not only that means it was written not only to uh, the Ephesian Christian community, but the various Christian communities throughout the Roman province of Asia. This is indicated by the fact that the oldest and best manuscripts uh, do not have the word Ephesus in Ephesians one one. Uh, it's in the manuscript tradition, but the oldest and best manuscripts do not have it. We uh, believe, and I'm a firm believer, that uh, this is was also called, was written, to, uh, uh, there's an identification of this letter as being to the Laodiceans. Uh, a man named Martian was actually a heretic in the first, in the second, third century. He saw this contents of what we call Ephesians and saw that uh, it was addressed to the Laodiceans. And that's what I believe Paul is referring to at the end of Colossians, where he wanted an exchange of letters between the Christian community and Colossae and the Laodiceans. And this Laodicean letter that Paul's referring to in Colossians chapter 4 is actually, I believe, uh, the Ephesian letter. So it was a circular letter. And so also, uh, the recipients of this letter are Gentiles, as we just read in Ephesians 2.11, Gentile Christians. And we also see that Paul is the author of this letter, Contrary to those who believe in the pseudonymous uh, in pseudonymity in regards to this letter, uh, the church never practiced it. 
in fact, Irenaeus and his on baptism, an early church father, he said they excommunicated a pastor who was posing as Paul, trying to promote Paul and his fame because he was a, he revered Paul. Uh, also, we see that Paul did not like it at all. Uh, remember in Second Thessalonians chapter two, a book we study in detail, he was concerned that. Uh, the day people were teaching false doctrine had got into Thessalonica saying that the day of the Lord had already begun, the eschatological day of the Lord, the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. He says that's not true. And even he said, even if somebody says they wrote a letter for, posing as us, writes in a letter that uh, it, it has begun, it has not. And then he puts an authenticating mark at the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, where he says, this is my authenticating mark. Why? To prevent forgeries where people are uh, not... Uh, he wanted them to know it was him writing and not somebody else. So very, very, but you know, again, that's, you know, in biblical scholarship, I believe that especially with the pastoral epistles, they believe in the pseudonymous uh, authorship there. Uh, whereas some is picking up uh, support for the uh, Ephesians being written by someone other than Paul, which is ridiculous. And then we see that this was written probably around between 60 and 62 AD. It's one of the prison epistles, we call it. First, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. I remember Colossians and Philemon were, went out to, without uh, went out with Epaphras, uh, Tychicus, excuse me, and uh, Ephesians was probably in his pocket too. And so that uh, so we see that um, these are called the prison epistles. Paul was released in 62 A.D. He was in a, under host arrest, waiting his appeal before Caesar. He was released from that first Roman imprisonment. And uh, then he was a prison later, about four or five years later, in 68 AD, he was uh, murdered by, uh, put to death by Nero. And so we see the purpose of this letter is to maintain unity between the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities through the practice of the command to love one another. And we see that uh, Paul uh, is basically in a lot of ways echoing Romans 11 in some respects. Here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul talks about the new humanity and how Jewish and Gentile believers are, uh, are uh, united to each other to form a new humanity, the new man. And when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 or 13, which I'm actually working on verse 11 right now after I uh, finish this class, and Paul in that section talks about the fact that Jewish, the mystery that was not known to Old Testament saints is not that Gentiles would get saved. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Gentiles would uh, be, be become uh, born again and saved. Uh, we get to believe in the Lord. And uh, we see that Paul even mentions this in the book of Romans, in Romans 15. Uh, what was not known was the mystery doctrine that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 3, the first 13 verses of that chapter, that uh, Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs, uh, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers uh, of the Messianic promise by means of their faith in Jesus Christ, the justification, and their union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. So uh, remember the Gentiles are, were the all, wild olive branch, as we saw in Romans 11, uh, 16 and 17. J Israel is uh, the olive tree. In fact, uh, regenerate Jews, Messianic Jews we call them today, are actually the remnant of Israel. The believing remnant is the, uh, the nation of Israel in that metaphor in, in uh, Romans 11, 16 and 17. And we see that the branches broken off in that passage were unregenerate Jews. And the Gentiles were engrafted, uh, Gentile believers were engrafted contrary to nature. I mean, it was against nature to do that in the natural realm. But uh, Paul does says that because he wants to emphasize the supernatural nature of Gentiles and Jewish uh, believers uh, being united. And that was done through their faith in G music, mutual faith in Jesus Christ, the justification, and simultaneously the baptism of the Spirit. Remember, Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, yeah, talking about the baptism of the Spirit there. And he says, there's neither, therefore, that neither, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are equal in Christ. All, all are one in Christ, excuse me. So we see that's very, very important. So this is, we're part of the new humanity, us Jewish believers, Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And this is important because, remember, uh, Satan is temporarily the god of this world. And uh, we know that from 2 Corinthians 4, 4, as we noted many times. And he, the whole world is on his power, 1 John 5, 19. Uh, all the kingdoms of the world are his. We know that from Luke 4, 6, where he offered him up to Christ, that Christ would bow down and worship him. And Jesus emphatically rebuked him with the word of God. Now, that wouldn't be a legitimate temptation of our Lord unless he had that kind of authority over the world. And he does. And he deceives the entire world. Revelation 12 teaches us that. So 
uh, the first step and restore. Remember, mankind was designed to rule over the workers of God's hands, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as we pointed out. Now, how was how God going to restore mankind to its rightful position the way he intended it to be? Well, he did this. He sent his son. He sent his son into his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father, which Paul talked about in his first intercessory prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 22, 23. And uh, we, so that, uh, that was the first step in restoring mankind over the works of God's hands. Uh, creation. And now listen to me. You remember Daniel 7, uh, was it 14 and 15, 13 and 14. The Son of Man went up to the, uh, one like the Son of Man went up to the Ancient of Days. That's a picture of Jesus Christ at his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father. The Father is the Ancient of Days in that passage. And Jesus, in the Gospel, always described, more than any other designation for himself, describes himself as the Son of Man. And everybody who was a Jew, including the Pharisees and the scribes, they all knew what he was saying. He's the fulfillment of that. And so when he ascended uh, at the right hand of the Father, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that, that Psalm 110, is verse 1, is quoted quite a bit by the New Testament writers, okay, because it's important. So now he's got the title deed to planet Earth, Revelation 5, talks about him breaking the seven seal scroll, which is the title deed to planet Earth, okay? So right now... The, se the second step in restoring mankind over the rule of the works of God's hands and, as, as, and over creation is, uh, is every time a Jewish or Gentile human being believes in Jesus Christ, the Father declares them justified after imputing his son's righteousness to him, declares them justified. That means they have eternal security. They were saved based upon the merits of the object of their faith, nothing that they did and uh, or will do in the future. Uh, it, it's based upon, and then at simultaneously through the baptism of the Spirit, talked about in Romans 6, Colossians 3. Uh, we see it also in Ephesians 2, 5, and, uh, 5 6, and 7. And uh, it, in Colossians chapter 2 actually talks about this, that uh, the baptism of the Spirit and our justification identified us with Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. So we're seated with the right, at the right hand of the Father. We're members of the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says that. We're members of His body, the future bride of Christ. So that's exciting. So when Christ comes back at His second advent, to start the kingdom, his millennial reign. And when he comes back at the second advent, we're, study, we're studying our Day of the Lord series at Doctrinal Bible Church here on Wednesday evenings, and we see that at the second advent, uh, Jesus will not only ki uh, kill Antichrist and the false prophet and destroy the tribulational armies, uh, but he will also imprison Satan and the fallen angels for a thousand years. Remember, Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, he's saying he was upset with them because they were going into pagan courts to resolve their issues with each other. And he, he said, isn't there anybody who is wise enough to judge between the two of you and the Christian community? Why would you go to the heathen and I, I think, uh, resolve your cases? And he said, don't you know you're going to judge angels? <laughs> so why is that? Because we're coming back with Christ at the second advent. Okay? So th this is exciting. So you, you know, you are, and I, you and I are in the greatest dispensation of history. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob yeah, they're saved, and Daniel, all those great saints of the Old Testament, but they're not members of the bride of Christ. Remember John the Baptist? He's a friend of the bridegroom. Old Testament saints are friends of the bridegroom. We saw that in the Gospels. <laughs> so you and I, I mean, there's not many, he chose not many mighty, right? He said to the Corinthians, we're chosen among you, and uh, amen to that. But it's like fascinating that here we are, uh, just us regular old people, uh, you know, and uh, nothing special about us, and you know, saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ and he has made us members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ and we're going to reign over this earth for a thousand years with our Lord. Pretty cool stuff. So look at Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1 now in my translation. Again, we'll read the entire chapter and then we're going to go back and look at verse, verse 16. So it says, Now, correspondingly, even though each and every one of you as a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit, speaking of course of Satan, who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also formally for our own selfish benefit, 
conducting our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh. Specifically, by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth. Just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. So notice in the first three verses, he's talking about uh, our three great enemies. We, prior to our justification, our conversion, we Christians were uh, enslaved to sin and Satan in this cosmic system. He talks about the sin nature of the flesh, he calls it, because that's the location of the sin nature. And, uh, and that's the reason why we go back to the dust of the ground, our biological life. And uh, that's the enemy within. And then the first two verses, he talks about Satan and his kingdom, the cosmic world system, which is the enemy outside of our borders, outside of our bodies. So now he mentions this, their unregenerate state because he wants to accentuate the grace and love of God. What God's love did in his mercy, uh, his mercy and his grace, unmerited blessings, mercy, withholding judgment, and all flows from his attribute of love. Verse 4, but because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love, with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones, because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. And here's how he did it in the next two statements. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him our identification with Christ and his resurrection. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies, and that's called our session, our identification with Christ and his session. And why did he do this? Because of our faith in and union identification with Jesus Christ. And now it says in verse 7, he did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the millennial reign and the new heavens and the new earth, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. And so in other words, he's going to show us off, just like a, a husband, uh, a newly, newly wed, uh, newlyweds and the husband shows off his beautiful wife, right? His beautiful bride, that's what the Lord's going to do with us for all of eternity. Look at verse 8. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It never originated from meritorious actions as a source, so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us have been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Therefore, therefore, in verse 11, is saying what he's going to say next is an inference from the first 10 verses. Therefore, he says, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the circ designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. And then he goes on to say, also, each and every one of you used to be alienated from this nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, that's the Messianic promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to possess, not to possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So like the first three verses of the chapter, he's talking about their pre-conversion state in relation to the nation of Israel and the, the believing remnant in Israel. And so it says in verse 13, like verse 4 of, of the same chapter, he's now going to accentuate the grace of God. And so then he says, uh, however, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, each one of you as a corporate unit who formerly were far away had been now brought near by the means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself, Jesus Christ, personifies our peace, namely, by causing both groups to be one. Specifically, by destroying the wall, which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility, and that's between the two races and the two races with God. Verse 15 says, in other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity, by means of faith in himself at justification, 
and union and identification with himself to the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two races, of course, and the two races with God. So he's, uh, he's, he's saying there, uh, there that uh, the, the law was a, a prob- was a problem because the law, because the dietary regulations, it hindered Gentiles and Jews from having relationships with each other, having dinner with each other. Uh, a Jew would never go into a Gentile's house because of the dietary laws, which were designed to protect Israel from uh, when they went into the land of Canaan to dispossess the Canaanites. It, pre- it prevented them from uh, pro- uh, protected them from uh, getting involved in the worship of false gods, uh, the, the gods of the Canaanites, because uh, the foods they eat, they ate, which God designated unclean, were the types of food that the Canaanites used to uh, partake of in their worship of their gods. So that's why he did it. Now look at verse 16. And so he says in verse 16, in other words, that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility. And again, that's between the two races, interaction with each other and the two with God. And he did this by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. And you can see this in my translation uh, throughout, because I'm, you, I interpret the prepositional phrase, whether it's ento uh, Jesu Christu, ento Christo Jesu, or en auto, uh, and that uh, as being having the figure of metonymy, where the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him. Now we have verse 17. Correspondingly, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, verse 18, through the personal, intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Well, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit, have been built on the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each one of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of this temple or this uh, te- uh, this uh, house, uh, God's household, it's being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union identification with Him, all of you without exception are being built together. He's talking about their spiritual growth in the, in the last two verses there. In, and this is into God's dwelling place. And it's done by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit, which is appropriated through faith, appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ. See how it all fits together? So, uh, we see that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16 is composed in the Greek text of an epexegetical hina purpose clause, and then it's followed by a result clause. Today, we're looking at this epexegetical hina purpose clause, which is uh, actually, uh, in the Greek text, it's chi apokatalexai tus amphoterus en henai somati to theo dia to staru, which I translate... In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through the cross. The Net Bible translates that and to reconcile them into one body to God through the cross. And the result clause is uh, is this. Apoktenos, tain, ekthron, and autu, which I translate, consequently, he put to death the hostility by means of faith in himself and justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Again, I'm using the figure of autonomy there, interpreting it as, as such. And so they translate it, by which the hostility has been killed. So this Hena Epexegetical Clause that we're going to note today exclusively explains the previous assertions which are found in the contents of Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. Specifically, it explains the previous Hena Purpose Clause in Ephesians 2, 15. So in other words, uh, the, these two Hena purpose clause in verses 15 and 16 are not describing a twofold purpose. The one in verse 16 is amplifying or explaining the one in verse 15. So again, 
this epexegetical exegetical purpose clause, and this is for those on the on the video, this is the transliteration from the Greek text. And this is taken from the Greek text. I'm reading it from the Nestle Alan uh, 28th edition. Uh, it's Akai, Apokatalexai, Tus, Ampaterus, and Henai, Somati, To, Thel, Dia, Sturu, Tu, Sturu. So this Hina purpose clause explains, again, the previous assertions which are found in verses 15 and 14. Specifically, it explains the previous Hina purpose clause in verse 15. Now, how do we know this? It's indicated by several factors. First, by the fact that the subjunctive conjugation of the verb apokatalasso uh, is employed with a conjunction hina, which appears in verse 15, in order to form a clause which presents the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ nullifying the Mosaic law system by means of his impeccable human nature and hypostatic union. Thus, the hina purpose clause asserts that it was for the purpose of reconciling Jewish and Gentile Christians to God through the cross of Jesus Christ that the latter, Jesus Christ, nullified the law by means of his impeccable human nature and hypostatic union. So the Hena Purpose Clause here in verse 16 asserts that Jesus Christ, our Lord, reconciled Jewish and Gentile Christians into one body to God through the cross, by means of which cross the hostility, the law, which caused problems between the two races, had been killed. This is indicated by the fact that the contents of peace mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 and reconciliation here in Ephesians 2.16 are obviously related and synonymous. Also, the cross, which is mentioned in verse 16, is referred to in verse 14, if you notice, with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ destroying the wall, which served as the barrier, that is that which caused hostility between the two Jew, the Jewish and Gentile races and the two with God. And of course, he's speaking of the law. On the other hand, we see verse 15 speaks of the Lord nullifying by means of his impeccable human nature, the Mosaic law, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws. And lastly, the reference to one body in Ephesians 2.16 is alluding to what Paul taught in verse 15, that the Lord nullified by means of his human nature, the Mosaic law, and he did this in order that he might cause the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities to be created into one new humanity. So this work of the Lord was appropriated by the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities by means of their faith in Jesus at justification. And simultaneously, at that moment, the Holy Spirit, through the baptism of the Spirit, placed them in union with Christ and identified them with Jesus in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. So therefore, we can see that the assertion in Ephesians 2.16 actually summarizes the contents of verses 14 and 15. So what you just saw me do and I'd like to mention this from time to time, as I explain my interpretation. This is very important because I don't want you, I want you to believe, understand why you believe what you believe. I know why I believe what I believe, and here's my reasons, okay? I don't you want you to just accept what I say, carte blanche, like I'm the Pope, okay? When I was a Roman Catholic, that's what we, they, people do. They just blindly obey him or listen or adhere to whatever he says. And so that doesn't mean he's, he's got to be have scripture behind it. So, and the other thing is, you don't know, you gotta, our job is as a pastor, I'm trying to tell you, I want you to know what the intent of the writer was in the original languages. And by the way, if you don't know the original languages, no big deal because in modern translations, you're, gonna get, you're getting the word of God. I know that because I've been working in the Greek and Hebrew texts and Aramaic texts of the Old Testament for my whole adult life pretty much. And those modern translations are unbelievably cool. They're great. And uh, fantastic work by these men and women in these translation committees. It's not just the work of one guy. You know, I have my own interpret uh, translation because that's what I'm, you're supposed to do. It's what they teach you in seminaries too, by the way. And uh, it's, it's a good idea And uh, because you have to interpret for your people. That's why I, I give you my translation because I'm your interpreter. And it's much more interpretive because I'm your interpreter. If I was in a translation committee, I wouldn't be as wordy in my translation. So... So I don't. I want you to think. Use your mind. You know, but you, and people don't be blind. I even see this. I even see this in evangelical uh, Christianity, where uh, and even my wing of Christianity, where you know whatever pastor so so or doctor so and so says, it's got they. It's it's got to be true. Well, okay, that's that's great that you believe, you have faith in him. But at the end, does he, can he back it up? Is it inter so? How? Why do you believe that? 
And uh, why do you believe what that doctrine? Okay, you know why do you believe there's the Trinity? Here, I, you know, I've taught on the Trinity many times. So I give you, I give you when I teach you, you should understand why there's a Trinity. Be able to explain it to others. You know, he even said that Paul says that in Hebrews. You ought to be teachers by now, not pastors, but able to teach one another scripture. Your, your younger brothers and sisters in Christ, you should be able to teach them and help them and instruct each other. That you know, it's not just the pastor. We should be able to understand and believe and, and, and explain what we teach, what we believe, why we believe what we believe. If you can't explain why you believe what you believe, then you're just not thinking, not using your brain. That's called the dumbing down of Christianity. We get the dumbing downing of America today. Like it's been going on for since World War II, since, since the 50s and the 60s. So we, we, we must use our brains. You're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's all up in your head, by the way. And strength. Okay? And, you know, lazy Christians, I just don't like. I'll tell you right now, you know, obviously I love them. And this is why I, if you get convicted and you get upset with me when I'm saying, that's because you're guilty. <laughs> I used to love it when people get all upset. It's like, well, then that you just gave yourself away that you, you're guilty of this. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't get upset with me. You'd be praising me for saying, speaking the truth. Because this is the truth. And so I don't make it, I don't, I'm not trying to make enemies. I'd like, I, I'm like anybody else, I'd like to be liked. Who doesn't? Uh, but it, it, not at the cost of truth. You know, I'm not going to sit there and blow smoke at you and tell you something that you want to hear, which a lot of pastors will do. And they're hobby horses, and they hang on the same kind of subjects all the time because they know they can bring in the crowd or using talking about politics uh, because they know you're right wing. They're going to that people are right wing, so they're going to talk uh, uh, conservative politics or Democrat. If you uh, you know you're in the uh, some of these churches that are, with, are democratic, you know, like in the black communities, they a lot of them are. The, the black pastors, I know some black pastors that, that uh, they're liberal in their, in their persuasion, their politics. And so they'll talk about things that the, the liberals, uh, that they believe in their, in, their, in their end of Christianity. So at the end of the day, that's not my job. That's not their job. Our job is to teach the truth, the word of God. I don't put my politics out there. You know, what do you care what my politics are? And uh, my job is not to teach you how to vote. <laughs> my job is to teach you the word of God. And let, and let the Spirit guide you on those decisions as well. So this is very important. I just gave you my explanation as to for what. Well, let's go back. Let me just, I don't want to give you all the reasons again because I don't have as much time. I'm just, I just said to you that the Hena Purpose Clause explains the previous assertions which are found in the contents of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In particular, the, the Hena Purpose Clause in verse 15. And I just gave you my reasons for that. So, in this Hena Purpose Clause in verse 16, we have some uh, an interesting word. We have this word, apokatalaso, uh, which speaks of the act of Jesus Christ reconciling Jewish and Gentile Christians in relation to God in the sense of reestablishing properly, proper, friendly, interpersonal relations with God. Let me say that again. In this first statement in Ephesians 2, 16, the verb apokatalaso, is speaks of the act of Jesus Christ reconciling. That's what apokatalaso means. That's why it's in quote. Quotes. Uh, Jesus, his, through the act of Jesus, he reconciled Jewish and Gentile Christians in relation to God in the sense of reestablishing proper, friendly, interpersonal relations with God. And this disruptions, this disruption of friendly relations was caused by the Mosaic Law, according to Ephesians 2.15. In other words, this verb speaks of the restoration of the relationship between the human race and God, which was severed because of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In other words, this verb apokatalasso, reconcile, speaks of the act of Jesus Christ reconciling the human race, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, to God. Now, it's interesting here. In Ephesians 2, 11-15, Paul's been discussing the reconciliation of what? That it's, he's discussing the reconciliation between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, for the very first time in this chapter, he's discussing the reconciliation which has taken place between these two groups and God the Father. Remember, there would be no, there would absolutely be no reconciliation between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities with each other unless there was first a reconciliation between them and God the Father. Now, we've studied... The doctrine of reconciliation in my ministry, Winston Bible Ministries, uh, we, when I was in Massachusetts before coming to Huntsville, Alabama, where I am now located as the uh, pastor of Doctrine of Bible Church, and also I continue my writing and teaching for Winston Bible Ministries. 
And uh, we see that uh, we, when we were in Massachusetts, I think it was before we did Jude, uh, we did a series on the finished work of Christ. We did the doctrines of reconciliation, propitiation, and uh, redemption. And so we, in this ministry, we talked about the person and work of Christ. I did that when I was in Marion, Iowa. And then all of that stuff is on our website. There's written articles under Christology. And then under Soteriology, we have the doctrines of redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, which speaks of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we call it. And so reconciliation is something, if you're part of this ministry, you should, should very, be very well familiar with. So, But if you're looking, if you're new and you came in for the first time, uh, you can go to our website, winston.org, and download free the Doctrine of Reconciliation. It's in our written library under Soteriology. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, so you get, and it's also at Academia.edu, our website there. And also, we have the video and the audio of these classes. Uh, for instance, the podcast, the audio are on our iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, the Doctrines of Reconciliation, Propitiation, and Redemption. Uh, search for us under Winston Bible Street. Winston Bible Ministries. And then uh, you see on our website, winston.org site, you go to classes, you look, you'll see redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, learn those doctrines. Very, very important. One of the first things I ever learned uh, to uh, my studies with J. Vernon McGee and Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer, guys like that, was uh, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Schaefer was the first guy I think introduced me to that. And, th and uh, what's his name? Uh, McGee. So, very important. Now, we're coming near the end of this uh, lesson. In Ephesians 2.14, remember, if you recall, we saw the articular accusative neuter plural form of the adjective amphoteroi. 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 The ax, the, right here, the accent's on the Omicron. So, amphoteroi. So this word, it's an adjective, and I mentioned it's, it's, uh, it was articular accusative neuter plural. Now, it's important because there's a switch here. When you get to verse 16, you need to see this word. We have, what we have is the articular accusative masculine plural form of this word, not the neuter. We have a masculine here. Why? Well, in both instances, we know the word means both groups because the word pertains to two considered together and refers to a group greater than two. So this word, uh, what we have is amphoteroi, um, um, uh, it, it pertains to the totality of two. In each instance, when we see it in verse 14 and 16, in each instance, the referent, what this word refers to, or who this word refers to, is the Gentile and Jewish races, and specifically, the Gentile and Jewish Christian communities. Now, the question arises as to why Paul employs the masculine plural form of this word in Ephesians 2.16, and the new, while on the other hand, he does, uses the neuter plural form of the word in verse 14. Why does he do that? Well, very simple. The reason why he makes this shift in the gender from the neuter to the masculine plural form of this word is the referent of this word in Ephesians 2.16, which is the word anthropos, which means, translated in your Bibles, man actually means, it does, has no reference to gender here. Uh, sometimes it does, but it means humanity, really. Mankind, uh, you can say mankind, you can say humanity, the human race. And that word, anthropos, appears at the end of verse 15. Now, we noted that this word is modified by the accusative masculine form, singular form, of the adjective kainos, new. And also the new, accusative new to singular form of the adjective hase, which is translated one. So these three words means one new humanity or one new man. The word soma, body, is used, and if you look at uh, Ephesians 2.16, it says uh, he, the Lord Jesus Christ reconciled both groups Jewish and Gentile Christian communities in one body to God through the cross. The word body is the word soma. It's used here in a figurative sense to describe the church as being like the human body and that it has diversity among its members, but yet they possess unity. I, I love this word and I love this passage in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 because God tell, God's saying, and I've mentioned this before, he doesn't want you to be, if you're a Gentile, when you became a Christian and believe in Jesus Christ, he doesn't want you to become a Jew. You know, I had a, I, I knew, I knew a guy, I told you, a pastor, he's a Gentile, and he, you know, he grew his, he looked like a rabbi, and he walked around town with a Hebrew Bible. And he, he, he says he has to live like a Jew. I said, well, read Acts 15. Uh, read Acts 15. Acts 15, the Jewish, uh, the Judaizers who are Gent Jewish Christians trying to get Gentile Christians 
to keep the law. And Paul said, no, and that's why he had the first church council was over this. Should the Gentiles live like Jews? Because the Jews lived under the law. And they said, no. <laughs> you know, read your Bible. I mean, it's like, this guy, I mean, nice bushy beard he had. He looked like an Orthodox Jew. You know, he looked like he came right off the, uh, off the bus, you know, from Israel. And, uh, but again, you know, they would, the Jews would laugh at a guy like that, a Gentile like that. Look at that Gentile. <laughs> and I had, I have Jewish friends and I know they would do, they would laugh at that guy. So, um, so another thing is, is that, um, so they, you know, that being the case, you know, the guy doesn't realize, and a lot of Christians don't realize this, is that God loves diversity. And yet he has unity. We're all different. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave free. We're all come from different economic backgrounds. We're white. Some of us are uh, Caucasian. Some of us are Irish. Some of us are Jew Jewish. Some of us are African Americans. Some of us are Chinese, American Indian, Indian, Pakistan, those Indians. Uh, I mean, really, all over, all, he likes all kinds. Of, look at the creation. He likes different kinds of birds. That's why he created them. He likes different kinds of animals. He likes different types of human beings. <laughs> you know, he likes, he likes bald-headed Bill Wenstrom, and he likes you. You know, you know, gorgeous, whoever you are, whatever, handsome. You know, he, that, he loves that, you know. And so that's the beautiful thing about God. People don't, re don't really realize that, you know. He loves diversity and he loves distinctions, but he also, at the same time, he can unify them all together. So this word, body, in the text, refers to the church-age believers who are joined together as a corporate unit with the implication of each member having a distinctive function within this unit. So you are very important because you're a member of the body of Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're very important to God. You're very important to Jesus. You're members of his body. How important you, is your hand, your right hand or your left hand to you? Or your foot, okay? Or your big toe. I like my big toe. You don't get to see my big toe. Good for you. You don't get to see my feet. I used to have girlfriends who be like, like, your feet are ugly. It's because I have bony feet from my mother. I inherited it from my mother. I have no hair because of my mother. And just saying. <laughs> and she, I used to tell her that. She said, oh, shut up. We used to bug her about that. We were all, all bald. And I was like, because all her brothers were bald. Said, it's on your side of the family, Ma. And so it was on my father's side too. But not. So anyways, like, so we, you know, all these things that, you know, your human body. You like your finger, right? You like, I like all the members of my body, you know? And so Jesus likes all the members of his body. You're important to him. You might be a big toe or a little toe. I mean, you could be like me, you know, a pain in the rear. <laughs> he still loves you. He cares about you. You're, you know, uh, remember Paul says in Ephesians, you know, a husband's supposed to love his wife as his own body. Okay? So how much you love your body? You know, you don't want to, you want to take good care of it. You should be taking care of your wife like that, okay? And, and the body of Christ, we should be take, caring for each other. I mean, when Christians slander each other, you know, and they have church splits and they say all kinds of terrible, do terrible things to each other, it's like, it's like banging your head against the wall, cement wall or something like that, or taking a hammer and ham hammering your, your hand. That's exactly what it is. And God's like going, oh, these guys. You know, so this word, again, soma, body, it refers to church-age believers who are joined together as a corporate unit with the implication of each member having a distinctive function within this unit. And the referent of this word is, of course, the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities emphasizing not only the diversity between the two, but also the unity that exists between the two as a result of both being declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, simultaneously at justification, the Holy Spirit placed us in union with him and identified us with him in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. In the word haste, one, it pertains in this text, is uh, one, it says, uh, into one, what does it say in Ephesians 2, 16, your Bible, to reconcile them both into one body. So this word haste, one, it's modifying the word body, soma, and this word for one pertains to a single unit or thing, and not two or more. In other words, it pertains to one in contrast to more than one, okay? It's ascribing here, though, to this body of Jewish and Gentile Christians as being a unified, single human entity despite the diversity between the two. Now, 
The word soma is the object of the preposition n, which functions here as a marker of change or sta of state or condition. So therefore, this word n, it marks Jewish and Gentile Christians going from the state of being hostile toward each other and in relation to God to existing in the state of being one body, which is unified despite the diversity between the two. And the word for God, that's the, uh, theos, or theos, uh, this is referred to God the Father. That's the reference of this word. And this functions as a date of indirect object, which indicates that the Father received the action of being reconciled to both Jewish and Gentile Christians through the finished work of His Son on the cross. And the word for cross refers to staros, which uh, refers to the place where Jesus Christ experienced the wrath of God as a substitute for all of sinful humanity by suffering a substitutionary spiritual and physical death on the cross so as to reconcile all of sinful humanity, both Jew and Gentile, to the Father. And suffering this wrath on the cross is signified by the word cross. And this word cross is the object of the preposition dia, and that preposition is functioning as a marker means which would indicate that the cross of Jesus Christ, his suffering the wrath of God, was the means by which the Father reconciled Jewish and Gentile Christians with the Father. So thank you, Father, for another day of studying your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we, when we lay our heads on the pillow today, when we're, t we're walking around or going, we have a free moment, I just pray the Holy Spirit would move each one of us in the body of Christ to give thanks to what you did for us through your son and the spirit at our justification. We thank you and praise you for what uh, you did for us at our justification. We thank you for delivering us from your wrath and the hostility, uh, uniting us Jewish and Gentile Christians with each other through faith in your Son and the baptism of the Spirit. And we just thank you for the far fact, Father, that we're members. We who Gentiles who used to be far away from you and your people are now been brought near through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross. And we thank you and praise you for that, Father. And I just pray, Father, this would affect our behavior and that we would live in our lives in a manner consistent with what you did for us through both your Son and the Spirit and what you're going to do for us in the future as rulers of this earth, as the new humanity, with your son being the head of this new humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.